pledge allegiance to the band. It may perhaps discourage you, and not until your kidney or infected with this vicious virus, that you'll be ordered to pay a fine of seventy-five pounds. I'll pay now if you don't mind. Just make ten louder and make ten be the top number and make that a little louder. These guys are eleven. Welcome to Movies That Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald, and returning to the show today is a friend of mine who was here previously talking about the Fire Festival, and is returning today to the show to chat about Elton John's new musical fantasy biopic, Rocket Man. I'm thrilled to have back on the show today, Mr. Pat Francis. Hey, Pat, what's up? Hey, Josh, good morning. Good morning, and afternoon my way. It's 1 p.m., and it's actually gorgeous, 80-degree, sunshiny weather, so this is, this is great. Let me see if I can uh, trump your weather. <laughs> I'm sure you uh, can. <laughs> it's 10 a.m. here in uh, Southern California, and it's 80 <laughs> degrees and sunny. Yeah, you win. <laughs> <laughs> Three hours ago, I think it was maybe 68 and a little foggy, <laughs> but I'll take this. At least we have it over the weekend, and it's supposed to rain all week. So, yeah, I think we can dive right into this with Elton John. Uh, man, I know you've probably been a, a fan longer than I have. I wanted to know maybe some of the first albums or songs that you gravitated towards in your uh, appreciation of his music. Well, uh, my brother my brother is uh, six years older than me. He always says if there's one artist that defined his formative years as a teenager or going into college, uh, he says it's Elton John uh, in the 70s. Even though I don't remember my brother having Elton John albums per se, Elton John was just always, you know, always on the radio and I actually remember as a kid, we in in grade school, we had to write a card, uh, a Mother's Day card for our for our moms, obviously. And I remember that I just I wrote some of the lyrics from Elton's "Your Song" uh, in the card, and I think I just passed them off as my own. <laughs> you could do a lot worse, I guess. <laughs> I know. So thank thank you, Bernie. Yeah, <laughs> special shout out to him. I'm sure he's listening. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh. So really during the time when he was actually like becoming a superstar was when you experienced that whole thing. Well, yeah, because he was never not on the radio, mm -hmm. you know, it was to just, this day, uh, really to this day. And, um, and for me personally, I really, once he signed with Geffen records, there was something about Geffen records when I was, a, you know, that's when I was like in high school, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. That's when Geffen records came into play yeah. and I just remember liking the sticker. I thought it looked so clean and cool. It is really cool with the G ball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And anything, uh, anyone that signed was signing with Geffen, I just was like gravitated towards. So uh, I'm one of those rare people that I, I actually love the Elton John eighties catalog when Elton would started to wear suits and wear a hat. That's, <laughs> my, that's my personal favorite Elton. Yeah. I'm not saying it's better than his 70s output. That would be crazy to say that. But I do love those albums from the 80s. I mean, he put out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine studio albums in the 80s. That's like one a year. It's one a year. He, if you really think about it, he put out an album once a year all the way up through like maybe 91. Yeah, so I which mean... Is insane. Right, and even if... An, so even if an album was spotty or not the best 
you were you it was okay because he's given you so much material and there were right. always great songs on albums that were just okay yeah, you know and I mean? absolutely. And I like most of those albums, too. I think maybe what stops it from being to the level of the 70s albums is its production, because a lot of them are very have the, that time stamp. But I mean, the songwriting really never deteriorated all that much. For no, me. and I and I, um, you know, and then he started to work with Bernie again because they did take mm-hmm. a break for a while. And I really loved when he started to work with producer Chris Thomas. Yeah. I mean, I know you said the production's time stamped, and I agree with that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, Chris Thomas for me and Elton John that was just a, a, a that was a win for me. Yeah, for sure. It was still accessible enough now where it doesn't it doesn't take away too much from the music as compared to a lot of the other. Uh, Maybe, I guess, the second wind rock stars of that era who are coming back from the 70s, you know? Yeah, yeah. It holds like, up a little better. I'll just throw out, like, for example, like, uh, like maybe Heart. Yes. You know, huge comeback in the 80s with that big 80s production, big drums and all that stuff. Mm. And although those songs do hold up when they play them live now because they strip them down, um, yeah, that, uh, that production is, uh, it is what it is, but everyone did it. Everyone had to do it in order to to maintain their career through the 80s. And I don't blame them for that. So Elton John had the advantage of having such incredible songwriting chops that it overshadowed everything else about him. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I recently listened after we had talked on Twitter not that long ago about Jump Up, because I hadn't heard that album since I was maybe a teenager. And I, it didn't really leave much of a mark on me, but I went back and listened to it last week. And yeah, it is pretty good. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what, like, it's crazy when, and when I say that that's my favorite Elton John album, (laughs) but I don't know why it is, but I just, I do love all those songs, you know, and it's got one of my favorite Elton John, Bernie Toppin songs of all time, which is, uh, Empty Garden. I'm surprised that that didn't make it into the set list in later, later years with Elton, because what a tribute to, to John Lennon and what, and, and such a. You know, like what with the, the lyric about uh, it's funny how one insect can damage so much grain. Hmm. I mean, that's just gorgeous. I mean, yeah. referring to I won't even say his name, but referring to John Lennon's uh, murder as an insect. Mm-hmm. I mean, you it's, know what I mean? It's really it's powerful. Just, it's really powerful. And, um, you know, referring to uh, John Lennon as a gardener. I, I just I mean, I just love it. It's yeah. just it's just great. I mean, Maybe the sketchiest song on there would be I Am Your Robot, and yet I love it. <laughs> right. It's fun. And it's, it's so funny because I think Bernie Toppin says, like, oh, this was one of our worst albums. Well, first of all, <laughs> Bernie only wrote one, two, three, four, five songs on the album, and he wrote he wrote I Am Your Robot. So, right. I mean, <laughs> and the other songs he wrote I love, Spiteful right. Child. And so I've read a Lies. lot of times when Bernie says this is our worst album. Like, he said that about <laughs> – a lot of the albums. Yeah. And obviously but, uh, he's never listened to leather jackets. Oh boy, dude. <laughs> and you know what's funny is my grandmother bought me that because I asked for oh. it for Christmas that year. So I still have I still have that original CD. I mean, I won't get rid of it. <laughs> right. It's like a sen- sentimental thing at this point, probably. Yeah. Yes. But uh, that is because I, I listened to all these 80s albums just this week. Every single mm-hmm. one. Listen to them in order. And Man, the the only you know I like heartache all over the world. Yeah, that one's okay. You know I like I don't know what's that song he does with Cliff Richard. I can't remember slow, the name. Slow rivers. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, that one's a bummer. Yeah, I mean I. 
Memory of Love is okay. Don't Trust That Woman that he wrote with Cher is okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. But then everything else is literally unlistenable. <laughs> unlistenable. <laughs> I mean, so bad. I don't even know how this thing, I don't know how this got through the cracks. Right. I have no idea. If there are but any listeners out there that, that feel otherwise, please hit one of us up and let yeah, us know. Please. And I got to be honest, in the he released two albums in the 80s that he produced with his his 70s producer, Gus Dudgeon. Dudgeon, right? I think that's how you yeah. say it. And those are the two I don't like. Ice on Fire doesn't hold yeah. up very well for me either. Right. And it's got Nikita was a big single. But then mm. I really got to dig deep to try to find songs that I like on there. I like Soul Glove. I like... I feel like those are contractual obligation albums. Yeah, but then what? It, but what's weird for me then is he con- then in 1988 he hooks up with uh, with Chris Thomas again and he does Red Strikes, Red Strikes Back, Back and that's a and great it's album. It's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> I love that one. Those 86, 88 albums are rough. Yeah, how, how do you feel about Sleeping with the Past? Uh, Sleeping with the Past, um, I just listened to that again. Last night, let me check mm-hmm. it. Let me check it out. The hits on it were big. Yes, Healing they were. Dance, Club at the end of the street and sacrifice mm-hmm. were big. If this has ten songs on it, I probably like seven of them. I love Healing Hands is one of my favorite Elton John songs. That is a good song. Yeah, I remember hearing that on the radio and being like, "Well, well, that was after Red Strikes Back." But I remember hearing that and said, "Oh, okay, great. This is this is probably going to be a great album too." And then it it wasn't as good as Red Strikes Back, but yeah. um. You know. And that was the year he entered rehab, too, so he was probably maybe not in the best place. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but, um, yeah, yeah, for the most part, that's not, that, he didn't close out the 80s on a terrible note. He, no. You know, strikes back and sleeping with the past. There's a funny story about the song Sacrifice. When I was in college, actually, I was in grad school, and I did, like, a like a, a broad program. I went to Tanzania for a couple months, and I remember... When I was over there, they were for some reason obsessed with that song, with Sacrifice. Okay. Like everywhere, every bus I went on, every every store I went into, um, just walking down the street, there would be houses blasting that song. Every restaurant would just, I heard, I probably heard Elton John's Sacrifice about 25 times over the course of a month that I was there. And there were no other rock and roll hits that were being played. It was all just like, you know, the native music. Yeah. And then this random Elton John song that was played all the time. And so whenever I hear that song, that's all I think about is like I'm back there, like walking down the streets of Africa hearing Sacrifice by Elton John. It was very bizarre. <laughs> his, uh, his voice is so beautiful on that song. It is. It really it's is. Really, and uh, that went to number 18 in the U.S. and Healing Hands went to number 13 in the U.S. So he, um, you know, he had good success with that, with mm-hmm. those singles in the late 80s. So that's cool. And that was kind of right at the end of his, where his, before his voice kind of started to, to deepen. Yes. Yes. And mm-hmm. um, that album went platinum. So, I mean, that's, I mean, look, in, by 1989, that was, he was, he had been releasing albums for 20 years. Yeah. Because <laughs> Empty, Empty Sky came out in 69. So mm-hmm. to have a platinum album 20 years into your recorded career is crazy. Then the, the first album of the 90s, The One, that went double platinum. Yeah. I mean, so And the title track was a big hit. I remember when that was all over the radio. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I'm, I I don't like that album that much. That started the 90s, so I'll probably listen to those this week. Mm-hmm. But um, His yeah, 90s but discography is not it's, that exciting. No, and it's... um. 
But you know what? It's it's tough because after 20 years of recording, writing and recording song. Okay, let's just say an album a year for 20 years. You know, mm-hmm. let's say 20 albums times 10 songs. Ton of it's a ton of material. Yeah. So even, even to have a few tracks that are stellar is ridiculous. Right. And even you know? and when the filler is is simply mediocre rather than terrible. Yeah. He kind of channeled his energies after the one to focus on like musicals and. The Lion King and all that right. kind of thing too. So he, I think that reinvigorated his uh, passion a little bit. I think he probably got yeah. burned out on just pop hits. And you know, the single, the one, went to number nine in the U.S., a top ten mm-hmm. hit in the nineties. Crazy. And it's technically his third decade of making music. Yeah. I don't know so, if anybody else can really boast that kind of success. And then you know, and then in '94, when the Lion King soundtrack comes out, he. He has, you know, Can You Feel the Love Tonight goes to number four. Yep. Circle of Life goes to number 18. Insane. I mean, it, <laughs> I mean just that, that invigorated him again, that right. Lion King soundtrack. I mean, just, you know, just crazy. Are you familiar with the um, Aida musical? I am not. I always see the album cover and I'm like, I wonder what that's like. But I never, uh, you know, never... I would I would recommend giving the the concept album a shot. I think it came out in 99, 98, 99. And it has um, it's not done like a musical. It's different artists doing all the songs of the musical. And um, like James Taylor does a song and uh, Sting does a song. Leanne, Ra- Leanne Rimes does a song. And it's actually really it's a pretty cool album. It sounds like a pop album, but it's. It goes through the story of the musical and everything. It's a, it's a cool listen. I'll have to check that one out. Um, I guess for me, see, I did grow up on the early Elton John material, probably like most people did. My first album that I heard was the first record of Blue Moves because that's the only record that my dad still had when I was a kid. He had sold most of the other ones. Mm-hmm. So for some reason, that album always holds a special place in my heart, even though it's far from his best album. But I, I listen to it all the time because it's just it's kind of ingrained in me. And yeah, that's one that I'm, I own, but I'm not um, like I, I look at these song titles and I'm like, I, I can't really think of what these songs are other than yeah. obviously sorry seems to be the hardest word. Maybe this is one I pull out this week and listen top to bottom because um, this is one that just kind of goes under the radar for me. Yeah, there's some uh, some rough patches, but it, there's also some real gems on it, too. So it's maybe famous. maybe one of those albums that would be a better single album than a double. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. There's maybe two or three instrumental songs that are really, what's the word I want to use? Maybe a, a bit directionless <laughs> and, okay. and overlong. Um, but aside from that, there's some gems on it. So yeah, I would give it a shot. I'd say Baby for my favorite album. God, that is so hard because his string from 1970 to 76 is so mind-bogglingly prolific that it's just... Yeah, it's crazy. I would say maybe a three-way tie between... Honky Chateau, Madman Across the Water, and maybe Tumbleweed Connection. Maybe those three. Those three come out back to back. Mm-hmm. Back to back to back. Yep. And then in '73, he released releases "Don't Shoot Me, I'm the Piano Player" and mm-hmm. "Goodbye Yellow Brick Road." <laughs> a single album nope. followed by a double album. So he's yeah. basically three albums in one year. Yeah, and uh, you know, and you know, even "Don't Shoot Me" has the piano player has you know. Two big hits, Daniel and Crocodile Rock. Right. <laughs> you so, know, I'm a, I feel accomplished if I complete an entire season of a TV series in one year, let alone putting out three albums in one year, like writing and recording three full albums in one year. Yeah, like they were binging on songwriting. Right. 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, um, and then 74, you, it, there's Caribou comes out, and I think Captain Fantastic was right after that. Yeah. And Rock of the West season the same year. Yeah, two, it's two in 75, and then a double in 76. And, and then, Don't Go Breaking My Heart also. <laughs> I think we got to yeah. count that too, right? Yeah, you do. You mm-hmm. do. And I mean, it's, um, yeah, it just, it's just ridiculous. And throwing some Christmas songs in there as well. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, so what are, um, uh, can we say some fave Elton John songs? Sure. Mm-hmm. Why don't you go first? Well, the aforementioned your song is just, it just, it's, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I never get sick of it. I don't either. It's, it it's means- overplayed as it might be. Right. And it's an easy choice, but I had to include it because if it's a song that's so overplayed and you never get sick of it, that says something about the song. Right. And it's a song that established a five decade long career. Yeah. Yeah. From Don't Shoot Me, I'm the Piano Player, a deep cut. I love Elderberry Wine. Oh, yeah. That is a great song. Every Uh, now and then they'll play it on the classic rock station here, which is pretty cool. And that's that is cool. Yeah. Uh, from uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, the song that closes out the album, Harmony. Mm, I love that song, too. So love it. I love it. There's a a, um, a performance of him doing that song in one of like the t- uh, talk shows from the early 70s where it's him playing the song solo on a harpsichord. Um, oh, wow. And it's really, really amazing. Yeah, I'll see if I can find that and maybe link it in the show notes. Uh, you know, that would be cool. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Um, also, I just want to say about my li- this list of songs I'm giving you, these are songs that, that I really love. Obviously, I love and everyone loves all the hits. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I'm not really mentioning those. It doesn't yes. mean I don't like Benny and the Jets if I don't list Benny and the Jets, you know, whatever. Right. But but I'm just throwing out ones that um, that I love that maybe people don't remember or don't know. Yeah, but, we don't uh, want to keep to the obvious ones. Right, right. From 1978, the album is a single man, yes. which isn't isn't a great album, but I love Part Time Love. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I love it. I don't. There's something about everything about that song, the bridge, everything. It's like a perfect I, piece of pop. I, yeah, I've always loved it. Part Time Love is bringing me down because I just can't get it started with you, my love. Did I hear you say? From 21 to 33, I love Little Genie. That's my favorite album of the 80s. That's a pretty great album. Or no, I'm sorry. No, Too Low for Zero is. What am I, th- what am I thinking? But yeah, 21 to 33 is well, it's got numbers a close there, so second. You, right. you got confused. <laughs> exactly. Too Low for 21 at 33 is what you were thinking. That's the one. Yeah, it's a double album. Uh, from The Fox from 81, I love a song called Just Like Belgium. Yes. That's maybe uh, his that- most underrated album of the 80s, I'd say. I... I <laughs> Though it's really uh, dated sounding, but the songwriting is really, really great. Yeah, I think that's one where people would be like, ah, you know what? I've never heard that album. That that would be the one where people might say, yeah, I, I never I never heard that one. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's it's pretty solid. I like it. It is. Uh, the aforementioned uh, Empty Garden from uh, Jump Up. Yep. Masterpiece. One of his best albums of all time, Too Low for Zero. Oh, in my opinion, I mean, not a bad track on that album. Mm-hmm. I love every single one. 
And uh, but I'm gonna pick "Kiss the Bride" because it's so great. Oh yes. <laughs> I should have stuck up my hand. I should have got up to stand. And this is what I should have said. I wanna kiss the bride. Yeah. Then I, I have two from uh from the album that follows "Too Low for Zero," uh, br- the Breaking Hearts album. That doesn't mean it's one of my favorite albums, but I really mm. love Slow Down Georgie, She's Poison. Yep. And I love a song called Did He Shoot Her? This I has some great like rocking uh, gems on this. Yeah, I got to listen to that one again. That one I think kind yeah. of slipped through the cracks when I was looking back at his uh, discography. Well, I actually think that the label could have um, milked Too Low for Zero for a little bit longer and, and given them a break from recording an, an, an album the following year. Mm-hmm. But for some reason they didn't, and I, and I actually think I'm going to check this real quick because I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Too Low for Zero came out in May of '83, and Breaking Hearts comes out in June of '84. So a year later, yeah. And I really think they could have, uh, even though I love Breaking Hearts too. It's um, right, well, yeah. Maybe a little uh, rushed. Maybe a little rushed, but it's. Um, because I think people were still enjoying Too Low for Zero, so I don't know if they were were ready to go buy another Elton John album just yet. But um, right. and then I mentioned earlier uh, Healing Hands from Sleeping with the Past. I love that song. Great song. So those are just some. Uh, those are just some. Maybe a little bit deeper cuts. There's a couple hits in there, but yeah. uh, those are songs I really enjoy. Now, before I, I mention mine, are there any hits that you don't care for? Uh, let me look at the, uh, let me do some, uh, let me do some quick research. Um, any hits that well, I for, don't. For me, there were two big hits that I was never terribly fond of that actually I started to really love after I saw the movie. Okay. And, um, yeah, Crocodile Rock was one of them and Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. Um, no, I always, I always didn't enjoy those. I did. I, I, I have had an affection for those. Mm-hmm. Like if you think, like if you think like a song like. Tiny Dancer is so different from Honky Cat. Right. You know what I mean? Or, uh, oh, another shout out to a song, uh, a song called Friends. Oh, yes. From the Friends soundtrack. Not not the <laughs> Friends. <laughs> I'll be there for you. Yeah. <laughs> not that one. Uh, yeah, it's so funny. These, uh, you know, the bitches back is so different from, you know, someone saved my life tonight. I mean, it's yeah. just, or Island Girl, you know, or <laughs> it's just, uh, it's, it's so eclectic. Girl. Yeah, the singles are all so different. So uh, and then you have like Philadelphia Freedom, in between yeah. like his his cover of Pinball Wizard and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. <laughs> yep. And then I I do love his version of Mama Can't Buy You Love. I like that one too. It, it's very traditional disco sounding, but it's fun. True, true. But uh, and that's on uh, that's on like an EP called The Complete Tom Bell Sessions, mm-hmm. and uh, that's really the only song I like on that. Yeah. On that little EP, but I really like that song a lot. I do too. Now, now, where do you rate "Victim of Love"? <laughs> you know, um, have you have you ever listened to it? You know what? I don't think I own "Victim of Love." It's that might be something. the. That's the one I don't own. I wouldn't pay money for it, <laughs> but it it has its uh, moments. It has uh, some uh, charms. Yeah, these are all cover songs right or written by the guy who produced it it says uh, matt springer of ultimate classic rock placed the album at the bottom of the list for elton john's studio albums 
Yeah, I don't even think that was like re-released as part of any of the re-release programs or No, I don't think know, so. I think he's kind of disowned it. Yeah, so I think that's why I like the cover. I think he looks cool on the cover. He does. And honestly, I, I would listen to it before I listen to the leather jackets. Um yeah, leather jacket stinks. <laughs> it stinks. Matt <laughs> Matt Springer must have put his list together before Leather Jackets came out. It says um, the album was reissued in a digitally remastered format. Uh, uh, it was probably the, out for about two weeks and then was put out of print. Yeah, you know what? I feel like I need to. I feel like I need to get this album though because I'm a completist. Just mm. for that. Well, if you can get it for like a two dollar used copy, then yeah, I never see it though. Like in the racks. I wonder I if want... like on Amazon, if you go to, you know how they have like the uh, used ones or eBay or something like that. I'm I'm looking on eBay right now as uh, as we talk. Mm-hmm. I'm going to see what they have here. If it comes up cheap. I'm just worried if it's like out of print or something, it's going to be outrageously expensive. Yeah, then maybe I'll go to iTunes and just, uh, well, here we go. It's uh, $8.60. Is that too much? Um, You're saying yes. Yeah, you I said- would maybe not exceed like maybe six, five or six. <laughs> See, yeah. if, I, if I owned it, I would send it to you, but I don't. I just have it on my um, like um, Apple Music, the streaming service. Well, here's one. It says brand new, remastered, free shipping. Eight dollars and twenty three cents. Hmm. I gotta buy that. All right. <laughs> let me let me know what you think after you uh, give it the one and only listen. You'll probably get. Oh it. Um, yeah, I'm gonna hate it, <laughs> but uh, I'm buying it right now. I'm clicking mm-hmm. and I'm buying. There you go. Uh, just because I don't own it, and yeah, his, I, his I eight minute it. version of Johnny Be Good is something to have on the shelves. All right. Well, is purchase <laughs> purchasing? All right, we've witnessed this history. This will be one of those things that comes in the mail and I'll be like, I'll just see the envelope and I'll be like, I don't even know what this is. I, sometimes envelopes come and I'm like, I don't even know what this is. And then I open it up and go, oh yeah, it's that. <laughs> yeah. But okay. And done. then it goes right out of the envelope onto yourself and collects dust. Uh, it's coming from the UK. So delivery time is June 28th through July 17th. Okay. So we, we got some time. <laughs> so again, that's exactly why I will forget this. Yes. <laughs> Oh, here's what it says about uh, on on if I can read this from Wikipedia. Victim of Love, released in 1979, is the 13th studio album from Elton John. It is a disco album released shortly after the peak of disco's popularity. It was not critically or commercially well received, and is Elton John's third lowest charting album in the U.S. (laughs) Listen to this: after 1986's Leather Jacket. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and 1985's Ice on Fire. Oh my God! See, so we nailed it. We, we know did. What we're talking about quality equals quantity in this case. I remember when Ice on Fire came out too, and I looked on the back and I, I and I read that he was working with uh, Gus again as producer, and I so much enjoyed Too Low for Zero and Breaking Hearts, and it was Elton on the front wearing a hat yep. and a suit, and I'm like, here we go, it's more <laughs> of the same. And uh, and boy, it was not. That would be um, so disappointing. It's funny for me because like, I don't mind if there's an album that comes out that I love. I don't mind if the follow up is just like a Too Low for Zero Junior or a mini. You know what I mean? If that's yeah. what I'm enjoying at the time, I don't mind if they ride that wave. Absolutely. For another album, but Ice on Fire was a uh, no. But Nikita's uh, a good song. And actually, I kind of have a little affection for Wrapper Up, the George Michael duet. I wish I could find online all the all the name checks 
in that song at the end. I'm I sure there's to... got to be a list somewhere. Uh, I'm going to look up rapper up lyrics, but I, I don't think I've ever found the lyrics where they list everyone at the end. I think it just like it just says like play out list of names or whatever. Because I think they even name Linda Lovelace. Oh wow! I'm actually I I, let's see if it's on Wikipedia. No. Oh yes, it is on Wikipedia. Oh, oh here it is. Maybe I'm wrong about Linda Lovelace. Uh, oh no, it's there. She's wedged between Tallulah Bankhead and Little Eva. Oh, okay. So this this list I have on Wikipedia is out of order. Yeah, I'm looking at GeniusLyrics.com. Marlena Dietrich, Marilyn Monroe, Bridget Bardot, Doris Day, Billie Jean, Samantha Fox, <laughs> Joan Collins, Kiki D, <laughs> Catherine Hepburn, Vivian Lee, Grace Jones, Priscilla Presley, Vanessa Williams, <laughs> Doris Franfeld. No idea. I don't know who that is. Nancy Reagan, Rita Hayworth, Petulia Clark, Julie Andrews, Superwoman. It's a shout out. Annie Lennox, Mata Hari. And then it just says CCC. I don't know what that is. Hmm. Shirley Temple, Tallulah Bankhead, Linda Lovelace, Little Eva, Natasha Kinski, Princess Caroline of Monaco, which I can't imagine is easy to sing. Uh, Miss Pat Verness and Elsie Tanner. Wow. So, that might that just must be their assistants or uh, or maids. I don't know. Yeah. I I wish that for like the single release they would have done like a Sergeant Pepper of all those people. Uh, yes. So uh, you have you have a list of fave songs? Okay. Yeah. I I kind of separated it between rockers and ballads. It, it was too hard to just narrow it down to like four or five. Um. So I guess my favorite rockers kind of include. I love Take Me to the Pilot. Ballad of a Well-Known Gun. I'm, I'm sort of going album by album here. Uh-huh. Susie Dramas, of course. Would you count uh, the song I Think I'm Gonna Kill Myself <laughs> as a rocker? Um, yeah, maybe. Okay. it's. I wouldn't say it's a ballad, I, it, but it might be a stretch to call it a rocker. But I do love that song. Grace Seal. Oh, that's a great tune. Is amazing. Oh, empty. the song Empty Sky from his first album is is a jam. Yeah, that's a good tune. I just listened to that album the other day because it was the 50th anniversary. Yeah, as did I. The album is is okay. It's okay. Yeah. If I would have listened to that in 1969, my prediction for Elton John would not have been superstardom. Right, I agree. I would have been like, oh, okay, this guy's got a good voice and it's interesting, but... Mm-hmm. Um, Burn Down the Mission, specifically the live version on his um, live album, 17 November 1970. I'm still standing. Oh, see, I'm going for hits now. Crystal. I guess oh, that's more of a ballad, but that's such a it's good like, song. It's like a mid-tempo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, Grow Some Funk of Your Own, which isn't on a great album, but I, it's still a great song. Yeah. And ooh, there was one other one. Oh, Love Lies Bleeding. Ah, oh, so good. <laughs> Amazing. Like, um, what a way to start an album. Since he was always, you know, recording Bernie's lyrics for the for 90% of his career, mm-hmm. uh, he never, um, and being a, you know, a gay man, he never change the genders or anything he always just sang it was about a woman it was about a woman i think back in the early 70s that may have been a risky move to do that as it was <laughs> it would have been a very yes it would have been a very risky move i i i agree so silly in retrospect i guess for ballads i i have my very favorite is probably someone saved my life tonight even though it's a huge hit i just think it's such a powerful passionate song that has a really interesting interesting set of lyrics in that one right 
There's a song from Blue Moves that's one of my very favorite of his ballads. It's called Cage the Songbird, and he does it with Crosby. I think just Crosby and Nash. I don't think Stills was on there, but they sing background vocals on that, and it's really a beautiful song. It's about kind of like how Candle in the Wind was about Marilyn Monroe. This was a tribute to the French singer Edith Piaf. If you know who she is, yes, yeah, I know. I've I've heard the name. Mm-hmm. I'm a little upset that they didn't include her and wrap her up. <laughs> I, I right, I know. <laughs> Come on, guys. Seriously, maybe they figured that you know she got enough of a mention in uh that she got her own song, so she didn't need a shout out in that one. Okay, well we'll we'll allow it. Okay. <laughs> um, border song is one of my favorites. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful song. As Sketchy as I find some of the lyrics to be, I would go with Sweet Painted Lady, which is uh, opens the third side of Goodbye Elbrick Road. Oh, Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's, of course, is, nice. yep, is that's great. amazing. Pretty much all the slow songs on Madman Across the Water, Levon, Tiny Dancer, even Indian Sunset. Again, sketchy lyrics, but a really nice song. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like, actually, can we, can we talk about Bernie Toppin real quick? What are your feelings on him as far as lyrics go? Oh, I think he's amazing. But he, but he did write We Built This City. Right. right. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> Have you? Um, so but no, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, to just to just write. I mean, he's more of a poet, isn't he? Because he yeah. doesn't have music in his head, per se. So right. he's just writing these as poems or like free expression, you know, whatever you call it. Exactly. Or like and maybe or, or maybe like a song like Daniel, maybe like a mini story. Right, because there's no like rhythmic structure to it, and Elton kind of had to. It was his job to to mold the 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 words around the melody, which is not yeah. easy. And it's amazing because you know Elton doesn't write lyrics. It's an amazing partnership that they found each other by total chance, and that it worked so so well. Have you ever heard any of Bernie's solo albums? I have not. I forgot that he had solo albums. Yeah, like even like I guess eighty seven was maybe the last one, and hmm. it's uh, it's just called uh, Tribe, hmm. and it's produced by Martin Page, who I think he wrote. We built this city with. Okay, um, so I'm sure it's a good album. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, there's two duets on it. He sings a song called "She Sends Shivers" with Martha Davis. And then he sings a song called Billy Fury with Elton John. Oh, wow. Huh. It says all, all songs written by Toppin and Page. But, um, wow. I might have to check that out. I don't, yeah, I don't, I've never heard it either. So he's like, well, if Elton can write his own shitty album, I can do mine. <laughs> yeah. And he, he sings the lead vocals on, on this album. But I mean, if it was, if it, if it was any good, we would know about it. Right. 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 <laughs> kind of like when Jim Steinman released his solo album. <laughs> But he also released an album in uh, 71 called Toppin and an album in 71 is very early into their career together. It says it is a spoken word album of his poetry. Okay. okay. And then in 1980, he released an album called He Who Rides the Tiger. 1990, you said? Uh, 1980. Oh, 1980. Okay. And it Hmm. was produced by Umberto Gattaca, who was a, who was a, a big producer and, and mixer and engineer at the time, but um, huh. and it looks like he uses most, you know, some Elton John people on it. That can't be a good album either. Though. No, obviously. <laughs> There's a song called "The Whores of Paris" on that. Yeah, mm, that sounds like a hard pass for me. Yeah, if these songs were any good, he would have uh, he would have passed one or two on it. 
right. Elton would have re-recorded one of these down the line. But uh, yeah, it's interesting that he recorded three albums. I'm, I, I'm intrigued enough to check him out. I find Bernie to be uh, not lucky because, I mean, lucky to have met Elton and lucky, yeah. you know, uh, success takes fame and success takes luck. But he has the um, he has the great position that he can go, he can walk down to Starbucks and never be recognized. <laughs> That's true. Unless there's a super hardcore Elton John fan there. You know right. what I mean? Right. Like, um, my favorite quote from Bill Murray, comedian Bill Murray, mm-hmm. he said, people always say that they want to be rich and famous. He says, why don't you try to get rich first and see if that doesn't cover it for you? <laughs> because the, uh, you know, if you want to be famous, that's great. Yeah. But um, to be able to just walk around with anonymity and have bank mm-hmm. would be pretty great. <laughs> like that, that is truly living your best life. Yes. Um, I can't imagine that. I do want to just um, mention also Bernie's collaboration with uh, Alice Cooper on the album From the Inside. They co-wrote, I think, almost every song on the album together. I mean, again, uh, just just a tangent, but Mm -hmm. uh, Alice Cooper to work with uh, David Foster as a producer and then co-write songs with Bernie Taupin. (laughs) And he also used Davy Johnstone and Dee Murray uh, on the sessions, I mean, um, um, full Elton John, almost the full Elton John band. Well, yeah, and uh, and uh, uh, backing vocals. Uh, also, Kiki D was in there on backing vocals. No kidding. So, yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah, but wow. uh, all right, back to Elton. Back to Elton. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, I was going to say that I um, with Bernie Taupin, I generally like his lyrics, but there there are times where I don't love his lyrics. I guess I'll just say it that way, like. Uh, I don't know, like particularly to me, his his low point was maybe the second half of the Goodbye Albrook Road album. There's a lot of moments in there that that are kind of icky. <laughs> and I think yeah, he kind of falls into that sometimes. And it just, Yeah, you had mentioned a song uh, to me in a text. Which one was, what song was that again that you dir- don't care for? Dirty Little Girl is a little, it's not, it seems, it seems very unsavory listening to it in 2019. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's... um. I'm going to do an upcoming episode of songs that have not held up lyrically. Yeah. <laughs> because, they're, they're, and I think you were actually that uh, you tweeting about the, these type of songs, creepy, creepy songs or. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah like young girl. Not, that's, that's yeah. That's not where I got the idea. I, I, but, um, but then, but you guys gave me some ideas for some to add to my list for sure. And even like, even like all the girls love Alice, which is a, a kind of a banger. It's, the lyrics almost ruin it because it's yeah you know it's it's hard to it's hard to get into the song when he's singing about you know how this teenage lesbian who is self-destructive and is yeah. kind of using some language that shouldn't be used in that context you know it's just it's it's tough I have a hard time with it sometimes the um and that was in the set list on this final tour yes. Yeah, did you see the fun, this recent, most recent tour? I did not. No, my dad went. Yeah, I had never seen Elton. He was on my bucket list, so yeah. I saw him. You know, and um, I'm sure it wasn't like seeing Elton in the heyday. Oh no, because um, you know, I just saw Billy Joel a year and a half ago after not seeing him for 28 years. Wow, <laughs> I had seen him three times in the heyday, and he put on a great show, and he still 
the little lower register kind of works for Billy Joel songs because um, in the early days, Elton John would sing very high. But yeah, Billy he had the never, beautiful tenor voice. Right. And Billy never really did. It was, you know, uh, you can still do I'm Moving Out and all those songs yeah. in a little bit more of a gruff or lower register. And Billy puts on an amazing show. He's a real he's sitting behind the piano, but he's for some some way he's really he's putting on a show from yeah, behind he that. has like a like almost like an electric personality he, on stage. He just comes right yeah. to life. Now and I'm only comparing these two because I don't know any two other two performers like that are singer songwriters that are are behind their piano for the the whole show. Right. Although and, Billy Billy would get up for a couple songs and play a little electric guitar, yeah. sing just at the mic. So I was expecting I was expecting that Elton John would be that kind of a performer too, mm-hmm. and he's kind of not at this stage of the game. He's um, yeah, it, it's interesting because I saw the two of them on there. I think it was called like their face to face tour or something like that, where they yeah. toured together, and it was such a stark contrast between Elton went first, and okay. like, you could tell he kind of phoned it in. Which I mean, it's fine. He's Elton John. He's you know yeah. at this point he doesn't. I don't think he owes us much. You know, like he, he's allowed yeah. to phone it in. But then Billy Joel was in the second half and. Oh, he just he just you know blew the place up he was you know yeah. jumping on his piano and running around and he he's was a rock amazing yeah it, deep in his in his in his big belly he's a rock <laughs> right and um also this was uh billy doesn't really tour he plays he has a residency at uh, madison square garden and then he'll pick mm. a city or two throughout the year so he came to dodger stadium and so he brought pink out to sing new york state of mind oh wow that's pretty and awesome then, and then he brought Axl Rose out, and they didn't even do a Guns N' Roses song or a Billy Joel song. They sang uh, "Highway to Hell." Really? And the That's crowd super went strange, crazy. Yeah. Well, because um, I guess because Axl was touring with ACDC. Oh, that's right. Yep. So I was. Ex- that's what I was expecting from Elton, and Elton kind of he stays at the piano the whole time, and then between songs he like bangs the lid of the piano. Is that what you call the lid? Yeah. And then he'll, he'll get stand up, up and bow. And he points and he'll walk down the line and high five, but then he's right back Back to to his spot. Yep. And um, I wasn't disappointed with the show because I had never seen him before, but I was expecting Mm -hmm. more. But again, I didn't see him in the heyday either when sure he was really theatrical. So again, I wasn't disappointed. Like Mike Siegel said, Hey, I've never seen Elton. Should I go? And And he's like, how was the show? I'm like, the show was okay. Good. I go, but if you've never seen him, yes, right. you got to go. So um, just to check that name off your list, just to check the name off your list, and here, and the band was amazing. And oh yeah, he has the top-notch musicians with him. And to see um, uh, Nigel Olson and Danny jo- Davy Johnstone, and I had no idea that Ray Cooper was on the tour. Oh yeah, he's a force of nature. That's where my eye was drawn to the whole entire show. Mm-hmm. That guy on percussion. I think he's like 71 years old or something. Tossing tambourines up in the air. and Yes, he was fantastic. (laughs) I know we're going to talk about the movie. I just want to talk about, um, I'm going to, my producer on my show, we we make videos often Mm -hmm. where he will go through the cover art. Yes. And he's going to be coming out to visit in in two months. Mm. I'm going to have him uh, go through these Elton John albums because I know he's never seen hardly any of these because he's he's a kid at 30. But um, (laughs) The cover art is is crazy to me because like 
Goodbye Yellow Brick Road's a great album cover. Mm-hmm. And then the next album, Caribou, is terrible. It's atrocious. It's so hideous. <laughs> and then Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboys, a good album cover. And then yeah. the next, Rock of the Westies, which it's it's, it's just a just photo of weird. Elton wearing like a wearing like a Sherlock Holmes cap and right, a rubber shirt. It's like <laughs> with all those rings on his finger. <laughs> yeah, and then there's just like it's just like uh, some type of a font that looks like it's handwritten. Mm-hmm. But Rock of the Westies doesn't. This album cover doesn't tell me Rock of the Westies at all. No, it doesn't. It's just it's like something you would just frame, like his parents would frame and put on their mantle or something. Yeah, so it's just. <laughs> It's just very strange, you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> and then Blue Moves is a cool album cover because it's like a painting. Right, right. And it's all blue. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't even mind a single man because it's just him, but in like a... But he's got it, that outfit with the cane. Yeah, he's like top, he's like a top hat and, and, and long coat, and yep. he's just middle of the road. So it makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's maybe a that's a metaphor for the album itself, middle of the road. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so... um. So yeah, the album covers are are all over the place for me. Yeah, it's in, and the eighties ones a little. Some of them are a little. Yeah. Ice on fire is pretty bad. Yeah, I think it's like um, a still photo from the Nikita video. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, two low for zero is very cool because there's yeah. no photo of anyone. It's just mm. the number two, and then like an upside down triangle pointing down to a four. And right. Then a zero. I mean, it's. Yeah, it is. It, and the Leather Jackets album sucks balls. I think cover music, the whole package is just uh, I'm sorry, the a whole, waste of time. But, but Red Strikes Back is cool because it's got all his costumes. Yes. <laughs> it's true. And he uses yeah. his uh, – it's, it's an homage to Reginald Dwight, his real name. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he is striking back after two crappy albums. Right. I actually wanted to add something real quick to the Billy Joel sure. thing. I would argue that – Billy Joel, as much as I, Elton John, I prefer his music and his catalog, but I would argue mm-hmm. that Billy Joel is actually a superior piano player. How do you feel about that? <laughs> um, as far as technical ability, though, I think Billy Joel might have the edge on that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's interesting because I never thought about their their actual piano playing because they they both. I feel they're both geniuses. Yeah. Um, it was definitely more fun to watch Billy Joel play the piano. I'm like, oh, that guy's hands must be killing him after a show. You know I mean? <laughs> right, right. Elton's just um, gliding effortlessly up and down the keyboard. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. just. Uh, it's almost an extension of him. Yeah, just like a, a master craftsman. But, right. um, and you know what's funny is I like, I like Billy Joel albums. Like, I can pull out five Billy Joel albums that I like more than I like Elton John albums as a whole. Does that make sense? Probably I think not. so. I think I but know what I you're mean, saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're both equally wildly successful. I mean, yeah. Elton John has more street cred for some reason because I think Billy Joel is deemed uh, kind of not a great guy, even though Elton yeah. John is also, you know, a diva in his own right. Right. And and they're both a mess at points <laughs> in their career yeah. as far as – the weight gain and the and the the losing the hair and the yep. drugs and the you know everything the so, self-destructive rock and roll self-destructive, stuff yeah but um here's the thing about the Elton John show the Billy Joel show was very celebratory because he's going to tour until he dies he's not going to make any new music I believe we'll still get new music from Elton John here and there yeah I think so too um, I believe Billy Joel's really not going to make any new music and if he does it'll be a real Surprise to everyone. And Elton, and so Billy Joel's stage patter was very like, 
he was very self-deprecating and he told great stories about mm. the songs and Elton John, since this is his final tour, it was a little maudlin. It was a little bit, I'm thankful for everything I have. Yeah. I thank to Bernie. Thank you to, but it was very, it wasn't celebratory of his music so much as him really saying goodbye. Huh. Also some of the, the, the pre the video pieces that went with the songs that Elton was saying, cause he had a giant screen behind him. Mm-hmm. Some of them really didn't go with the songs. Like many oh, times my <laughs> wife would lean over to me and she said, this isn't really the video. I thought that they would put up with this song. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, doesn't seem to go with it at all. So um, that's weird. So maybe <laughs> I'm just was, thinking of them showing that I'm still standing video while he's playing your song or something. <laughs> no, no they weren't, it, these were like, these were like conceptual pieces that were made for the tour. I assume. Oh, okay. <laughs> but um, but they didn't seem to go with some of the songs at times. So interesting. Yeah, in that way, in that way, he felt like a guy like retiring. Yeah, like he's, you know he's I mean? checked out and he's kind of moving out. on. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, devoting his time to his kids is is very admirable. And there's been so many artists who have done like fake out farewell tours. This one probably seems a little more sincere. Yeah, I mean, he's 72. He just yeah. turned 72. There's there's no way that this is not is a fake out. Now, look, would he maybe say, I'm going to do a month of shows in Vegas? You know, when you say, I'm not touring anymore, that's different from say, from doing a show here and there. Right. You're not swearing off performing altogether. I don't think he's doing that. Because I can't imagine at 71, to, even if they're staying in the best hotels and taking a day or two off between, you're still packing a bag and... Mm-hmm getting to and from the airport and to and from the hotel and checking in and all that stuff. You know what I mean? Right, right. It's got to be exhausting. And at that age, that's when you've been doing it for 50 years, just about. Like Billy Joel, this residency that he does at Madison Square Garden is the smartest thing I've ever heard of. Those shows sell out constantly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's one of the big attractions of New York City. Yeah. He's like... You know, he is to New York City what Springsteen is to Jersey. I mean, it's true. Yeah. He's the guy. We got to go see Billy, man. (laughs) It's true. And I bet people have seen him multiple times. Um, If he came, if he came to Los Angeles again, I would 100% go because he did not, uh, he did not let me down. And um, both him and Elton played a fantastic set list. And yet Mm -hmm. you could name 20 songs that they could have played instead. It's unreal. I could see Elton John maybe devoting his time now to doing more things like composing for musicals and movies and things like sure. that. Because he seems to enjoy it. It's kind of like a yeah. second wave of his career. And maybe when they bring Rocket Man to the Broadway stage, inevitably, <laughs> I could see oh, him yeah. having a hand in that. Oh, yeah. We'll talk. Yeah. Maybe that'll be like, that's our segue. <laughs> that's our segue. Okay. Yeah. So, so Rocket Man. Yeah. So this movie was directed by Dexter Fletcher who, let's get this stuff out of the way right sure. away, who took over Bohemian Rhapsody from Brian Singer after he was booted. So, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, that is a big deal. And so I figured we would get a lot of the Bohemian Rhapsody stuff out of the way first because those comparisons are inevitable. Okay, well, first of all, what I will say is the things that bothered me in Bohemian Rhapsody, like when songs were played before they were written, or you know what I mean, yes. or or songs were written when Freddie's look was was his '80s look, but they're working on a '70s song. 
the little things that bothered me in Bohemian Rhapsody did not bother me in Rocket Man. Mm-hmm. And the reason for this is because almost immediately you know that Rocket Man is a musical fantasy telling of Elton John's beginning of his career. They let you know that immediately. So, for example, and I, this is this is a made up example. This is not in the movie. I'm just making this up off the top of my head. If in the 70s Elton John fell in love with a man who had blue eyes and then they actually played the song Blue Eyes, <laughs> it would it would make sense because what they did was they would use songs from his entire career that lyrically made sense to the part of the story they were telling in the 70s. Yes. Am I right? Yep. It, they, okay. it was more on finding the emotional beat of the right. scenes rather than just going chronologically. Almost like, here's my thing. Like with a lot of biopics, I have a hard time watching biopics in general. I, I find them to be, maybe this sounds a little harsh, but in some ways I find them to be kind of the lowest form of movies in a way because they're so cheap. And it's like watching a Wikipedia page. Right. In movie form. It's just, it's not compelling. And everyone has the same beats. Mm-hmm. A poor upbringing. Rags uh, to riches. Ra- and Rags to re- riches. Breaks through adversity. Um, uh, then, then suddenly the, the ego takes over. <laughs> ego and drugs and then redemption and then comeback. Yeah. I mean, they all have that. And I guess if they didn't, then you wouldn't make a movie about it. Because if someone just has a career that's not filled with any drama... You know what I mean? Right. Why make a like, movie? No one's going to make a Harry Connick um, <laughs> biopic. Right. He's off the top of my head. Right. He just doesn't seem to have any drama. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and that was a bad example maybe, but that's the one that came up no, off the no, top of my head. No, it's a good example. <laughs> I mean, just someone that just has, my favorite band is Cheap Trick. They don't really, they don't have any drama. They don't have any. Right. Have That'd any be a stuff. really boring movie i'm sure they did drugs i'm sure they partied and oh had yeah groups, but nothing too extremes no one died no one committed suicide no one right. you know went to, you know that kind of craziness yeah. so anyway and i know you did not like the queen movie mm, not so much no but for that reason it was very frustrating seeing them take liberties with the timeline and especially when brian may and roger taylor are listed as producers they right. saw that script Right. They could have easily said, we don't mind what, how you're portraying We Will Rock You uh, being written, but Freddie can't look like Flash Gordon Freddie. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you need to move this earlier in the film. What was the song they were playing when they were on their club tour? Was it um, Bicycle oh, Race? yes. Or, it's like, hey, that wasn't even written then, so let's do Keep Yourself Alive or let's do Stone mm-hmm. Cold Crazy during this montage. Right. It'll still work. I mean, that's a great song for a montage, but then, but don't have it for the montage of your club tour. Just little inconsistencies that, um, that did bother me, but, um, I still took it for what it was. And I I did enjoy Bohemian Rhapsody, but I love Rocket Man. Okay. So really when you think about, at least when I think about Rocket Man and and everything that it kind of had going against it when I was going into it, like a lot of things that I can't stand are by the numbers, biopics, cheesy music Mm -hmm. and overacting. And, you know, a lot of those tropes that, you know, most biopics suffer from for some reason, this managed to overcome everything for me. And I just, I can't stop thinking about this movie. No, I, um, we were trying to plan it as a family movie. Yeah. I don't know if I'd recommend that. 
<laughs> we just well, the girl the girls are eighteen and fourteen. Oh, okay. All and, right. um, and I didn't feel even though it's rated R. I didn't feel like it was uh, men kissing. There was there was no hardcore sex. No, you know? but going off of that, it was it was steamier than I was expecting. Like, take me to the pilot that scene. Yeah, yeah evidently yeah. I read somewhere that which is this is insane to me that this is the first mainstream film to feature gay sex, like actual like the beyond just kissing. Like there was actual. Right. Which is really crazy to think about the number of gay-themed films that have come out in the past five to ten years. And this is the first time where they ever actually showed a passionate love scene between two men. Right. That's that's nuts. I really am anti when people take their kids that are too young mm-hmm. to see movies that they're not ready for. Right. I'm the same. Uh, Being a teacher, I you know I work with young kids, and it's the same for me. I it really bo- it bothers me. Yeah. For example, I just I, I saw Shazam this year. It's rated PG-13. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. I called my friend who has an eight-year-old and I told him, don't take him, don't take your kid to see Shazam because it's very dark. And I, and when these people go, my 10-year-old's pretty mature, I, I'm sure he is. Right. But as a parent, I'm on my high horse. Be yep. careful, Josh. As a parent, if your kid is too young to see the movie by what the rating is, then you need to go see the movie yourself and then make the decision. My my daughter, who's 14, she'll be 15 this year. She just completed her first year of high school. I have no problem with her seeing anything that's in Rocket Man. Yeah. My mm-hmm. my oldest daughter's 18, uh, and she's gay, and she has um, she's had the same girlfriend for three years. Of course, we don't have a problem with homosexuality, and we never have. And right. we've told my my youngest daughter when she was like I don't know when she was like maybe eight or nine, she said. What's gay? And I just said, uh, you know how mommy and daddy, man and woman, and we're in love and we can get married? And she said, yeah. I go, well, sometimes a woman loves a woman and sometimes a man loves a man. And she said, okay. <laughs> and that was that. And that was that because that that is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing beyond that. Um, I always think that people, uh, right-wing people, sorry if you're out there listening, <laughs> Republicans, sorry if you're out there listening. I think people get caught up in what people are doing in the bedroom. And then that's when they try to make everything something else. When at the base, it's who you uh, choose to love. Absolutely. And I have have kind of a theory to go on my horse a little bit too. But I I also have kind of a theory that a lot of these people who fight so hard against homosexuality and and transgenderism and all that stuff, they have their own kind of issues that they need to sort out. Like maybe, you know, that may possibly, I don't want to, you know, pass judgment on people, but maybe there's some latency or or, or things that they, certain feelings that they had that they have been unable to express simply because of how they've been raised or something, you know, because I've seen things like that happen and it's very sad. Yeah. I remember like, I remember when, you know, even in college and stuff where guys would be broing out and they'd talk and they'd be like, would you ever kiss a dude? And I'd be yeah. like, well, yeah, what? Are you kidding me? I'm like, well, I'm not gay, so it wouldn't mean anything. You know right, what I mean? It, right. would be, it would just be like, yeah. it wouldn't mean anything. It wouldn't be, yeah, it's not what you think that it would be. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, people get caught up in crazy stuff. There's bigger issues. Yeah, uh, And that's well, one I, of, I think, maybe one of the most beautiful things about Rocket Man is that these things are in the film, but they're not a big deal at all. And and that's a common thing in, in gay movies that have come out lately is it kind of calls attention to the fact that this is a gay themed movie. You know, even in Bohemian Rhapsody, it's his the fact that Freddie was bisexual mm-hmm. was kind of they pointed fingers to that 
for his ultimate downfall and for him getting sick. There's some criticisms given to the movie that maybe they they villainized his bisexuality in a way, but um, where in, in Rocket well, Man it just you know that wasn't a big deal. There, there's people uh, you know straight people are promiscuous in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Freddie was extremely promiscuous, I'm sure, because he was, and and Roger Taylor was too with girls. Mm-hmm. But that's not a big deal because Roger Taylor didn't get AIDS. And even in this movie, uh, Elton John says, you know, I fucked everything I could. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Elton was also promiscuous. They all, every rock star in the seventies, <laughs> straight or gay, were promiscuous. Right. Elton was lucky that he didn't get AIDS. To be honest, we're probably you know, and he will. Pro- he admits that too. Freddie was unlucky. I mean, I don't even know if I want to say. It's just kind of the hand he was dealt. It's just the kind of the hand he was dealt, and and AIDS was a thing that just came about. They didn't know when they were having sex that AIDS was even happening. You know what I mean? Right. It was too too little too late by the time the epidemic started. Yeah, and and again, um, I think because I think Bohemian Rhapsody is PG thirteen because. I think kids know Queen music more than they know Elton John music. Oh, sure. So we in that movie, we have PG-13 promiscuity, like Freddie with champagne and saying, everybody party. And he's with, you know, on, on a guy's shoulders and yeah. he's throwing Tiffany boxes to people as presents. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, oh, look at that. It's Look at that crazy party. But then it's a Rocket, little sterilized. <laughs> yeah. Rocket Man, there's some, you know, there's some debauchery. Oh, yeah. They didn't want to make it an R-rated movie. They wanted to cut out all the, you know, scenes of debauchery, like you said, and made it a PG-13 movie, but Elton put the kibosh on that. He made some comment like, um, it was something to the effect of, you know, I, I didn't live a PG-13 life, so I don't want a PG-13 movie. Good for him. It shouldn't yeah. be. Yeah. I'm not saying, and, and, and they don't overdo it. I'm We should say that too. Right. They don't, they don't amp it up just so that, you know, to get an R rating. It is what right. it is. Yep. Another difference between the two movies is that our star Taron Egerton does his own singing in this movie. So when yes. you buy the soundtrack to this movie, it's Taron singing all the songs. And let me tell you, he knocks it out of the park. Look, if um, if Rami Malek was nominated for an Academy Award, mm-hmm. I can't imagine that Taron Egerton isn't going to be nominated for an Academy Award. I know. Um, I really hope so. Unless it's the fact that this movie is released in May, I think the Queen movie was released much later in the year. The Academy tends to forget about movies released earlier in the year. Also, it didn't do great at the box office the opening week. I didn't realize it didn't that. Because, well, because Bohemian Rhapsody is not up against summer blockbusters because it's true. released later yeah. in the year. And Bohemian Rhapsody is PG-13, so families might have been going to see it. But uh, – Taron Egerson, he doesn't, you know, you see a picture of him and you go, that guy's going to be Elton John. <laughs> and you throw the glasses on, you put a little space in the teeth and Harry, how he care and you thin up the hair mm-hmm. and uh, he's Elton John. I knew very little about him before I saw this movie and I was just completely blown away by him. Yeah. I only knew him from the, uh, from the first Kingsman movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Eddie the Eagle. And he's fantastic in those two movies. Mm-hmm. But I feel so like good. this is like some like serious next level acting chops that he's just proven himself to have. He graduated from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. Oh, so well, there he, you go. <laughs> he's he's uh, but he's 29 years old. Mm-hmm. And this is a uh, yeah, this was a stellar um, breakout role for him. And I hope mm-hmm. that he's um, I hope that he's nominated. He should be. 
I hope so too. Uh-huh. I hope the fact that Rami Malek just won last year wouldn't wouldn't deter no. the Academy and, from nominating him. And Rami Malek was excellent as Freddie. He was, yeah, he was good. But he was lip syncing, and this guy's not. And he yeah. does, he dances, and he. I could not take my eyes off him the entire time. It's he's magnetic. Mm-hmm. Is that the is yep. that the word I'm going to use? Yeah. Yeah, and and again, immediately, like I called up my brother and I told him. I said I just saw Rocket Man, and my brother said, "Oh my God, we're so excited to see it!" Because as I told you earlier, my brother says that Elton John's music, you know, was the soundtrack of his, you know, life. Yeah. But then I said to my brother, and the reason I called him, I said, "But I need to tell you." It's not a straight biopic. It is a straight up musical fantasy biopic because I know my brother is not going to like that. <laughs> I was thinking that as I was watching it in the theater, yeah. like how many of these people came in expecting Bohemian Rhapsody, the Elton John version and yes. are extremely disappointed right now. And so my brother said, oh, well, then I'm not going to go see it because <sighs> my brother, he's a Democrat. He's for women's rights. He's for mm-hmm. gay rights, all that stuff. Yeah. But when it comes to art, he doesn't really more conservative. <laughs> yes. So yeah. So there there are inaccuracies in Rocket Man, which um, and and spoiler alert, I guess if we're going to say some of these. Oh yeah, we can spoil away. For example, a, a real big one is um in the movie they lead you to believe that Elton John, who was born Reginald Kenneth Dwight, uh, they would lead you to believe that he takes his last name, John, from John Lennon. That's not true at all. No, it's not. Him and Lennon were contemporaries. Yes, but but he changes his name to Elton, he, and his publisher says, Elton, Elton Dwight, that's not going to work. We need yeah. something better. And he looks over, and there's a picture of the Beatles on the wall, and then they highlight John Lennon's face. <laughs> it's a little cheesy. Says, a little cheesy, and he says, John. That was dumb. But he really took it from... Uh, a singer, Long John Baldry. Yep. And Long John yeah. Baldry was also a gay man. And they could have worked that in. They, he could have looked over and there could have been a picture of Long John Baldry. Right. I wouldn't have yeah. alienated audiences that much to see somebody who wasn't the Beatles. No. And then they could have just highlighted the name John in right. the middle. I mean, they could have done and the same. Thing. Worst case scenario, a couple more people would find out who Long John Baldry is and hear his great music. Yep. And he, and he took his first name, Elton, from uh, saxophonist Elton Dean. So there's that. And then I said that they play uh, they play songs out of the timeline, which works. It's fine. Mm-hmm. I yep. love it. They move you along time-wise by doing like some musical montages. It's great. Yes, it is were, great. People are singing and dancing and breaking into song. And it's so celebratory. If you didn't know anything about the band Queen, had never heard of them and went to see Bohemian Rhapsody, you still kind of wouldn't know that much about them, in my opinion. It, you kind of have to know who Queen is in order to get something out of that movie, I feel. Whereas True. if you didn't, if you had never heard of Elton John before, never heard his music and went to see Rocket Man, you would, you could follow the movie perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. And then Jamie Bell is great as Bernie Taupin. He is. My only gripe with that is I felt Bernie Taupin was a little bit one-dimensional in the movie. We don't actually see as much of him as maybe I would have liked to see. Yeah. And um, the, the neat thing about Jamie Bell is Jamie Bell was in the movie Billy Elliot. Yes. And then Billy Elliot became a musical, which Elton John had a hand in writing the music for. Yes. That's a great movie. If listeners have never seen it, that's worth watching. Uh, Bernie Taupin was also follically challenged. Yes, he was. <laughs> Jamie Bell has a gorgeous head of hair. Yeah. I think offset the fact that Elton is is in front of the camera, uh, you know, as mm-hmm. the star, but is slowly losing the hair. Right, right. <laughs> 
I love um, how, how the relationship was touched on, though. You ne- almost never see that kind of close friendship between a, a gay man and a straight man where it isn't marred by drama and, and right. you know, unrequited love and everything like that. Right. Like, you know, like, you know, that Elton had feelings for Bernie almost right sure. away. And, sure. and and all Bernie would have had to do is just say the word and Elton would have dived right into that. But he knew where he stood and he didn't let it affect his relationship, his working relationship or his friendship with him. No. And, and it was never it was never an issue. And they had no. such a deep, profound level of respect for each other that they didn't allow that zone to interfere with that. And I'm thinking of that moment backstage right before one of the concerts where Elton chews him out, a, lays into him really, really bad. A, as a diva moment. Yes, yes, he does. And then, but then immediately when he's done, he sighs and he reaches out his hand and, you know, and takes Bernie's hand as his way to say, I'm sorry. Like, you know how I am sometimes. And that, that was the end of that. There were no hard feelings. It's just. No. I think there's a scene too where he does say, I'm, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he says, I know. And they move on. Yeah, because how could Elton not fall in love with Bernie when Bernie is handing, giving here, these are the words that came from my heart and soul. I'm giving them to you. I'm putting my trust in you to put music to these and make these into songs. It's almost like every every time he handed him a lyric sheet, he was handing him a love letter. And then um, what's great is, you know, Elton decided if Sacrifice was going to be up-tempo or if it was going to be a ballad. Like, obviously, if you get a song and the lyrics are called Crocodile Rock, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a rocker. That's right. something. You can't make that but, a ballad. <laughs> Yes, but when you, but you know, who knows if Tiny Dancer could have, couldn't have been a rock. You know what I mean? It's just you never know. What are some other Elton and Bernie things in this movie that are great? Um, okay, well, when they, when when they meet with uh, the publishing company Dick James at the beginning, and the songs that Dick James is refusing are songs like <laughs> Funky Cat and all these. I guess that's why they call it the blues. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't submit those to Dick James. No, that at that period they were submitting things like "Empty Sky" and yep. "Valhalla" and "Lady What's Tomorrow" and, and "Skyline, uh, Pigeon. Skyline Pigeon." Right. But um, but I but that was a way to show to say that Dick James didn't get these guys at first. Yeah, you know what I mean. But um, and I'm okay with that. I feel it's it's tricky because I know that um, people that don't know about Elton John, the way you and I know, are going to think that that guy turned down. I guess that's why they called it the blues. <laughs> and he, he obviously yeah. did not. But um, yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I, it worked within like the heightened reality of the movie. It's, yes, yes. The whole thing to me felt like an alternate universe in a way. Rather than yeah, just, the whole thing, yeah. that's a good way to put it. It is a heightened reality. And again, the people that don't know that Dick James, is that his name? It's Dick James, Dick right? James, yeah. Mm-hmm. The people that don't know that he turned down those songs also aren't going to know the songs from Empty Sky. Right. So, so that would be kind of a it, pointless endeavor. Yes. So it works. Everything works. Yeah. It works in that way. I'm trying to think of some other timeline things. Oh, when when Elton John plays the troubadour. What stuck out to me in that scene is another biopic thing is that a lot of these bands, they would, any other biopic would have him walking the troubadour with the chip on his shoulder, you know, like, hey, I'm going to rock this place and nobody's going right. to, nobody can touch me. But, but no, he was having a meltdown in the bathroom because Neil Diamond was in the audience. Neil Diamond and Leon Russell. And Leon Russell, that's right. Mm-hmm. These are his heroes. These are his songwriting heroes. These are his uh, contemporaries. Yeah. So um, what was the, what songs is, I forget what songs he plays in the movie at the Troubadour show. 
That was the Crocodile um, Rock, right? Where they um yes. When, when and um he he wears the big flamboyant boots, which he yeah. didn't wear those at that. This is the set list from the Troubadour in 1970. This is the set list that was actually played. Mm-hmm. Your song, Bad Side of the Moon, 60 Years On, I Need You to Turn Turn to Border Song, Country Comfort, Take Me to the Pilot, uh, Honky Tonk Woman, Rolling Stones cover, and then he closed out with Burn Down the Mission and Get Back. Wow. Amazing Which set is a list. Kick-ass set list. A kick-ass set list. But for this movie, you do need it to be the songs that they showed you in the movie. Because the set list I just read, that does tear the roof off the place, but not in the way a movie audience needs to see the roof torn off the place. Right. And Crocodile Rock was his first number one hit. So I thought that that was appropriate. Also, I could be wrong, but I thought the Troubadour shows are just Elton on piano. I don't I know. I think he had a, I want to say he had like a, it was him and like two, maybe like D. Murray and yeah, Nigel yeah. Olsen. I think it was just a three piece. And that's it. But th- there's a, a lot more band on stage in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. But, and it's, um, and, but it works and it's, um, it and does. that is where it's very, um, what do I want to say? It's very, uh, fantastical, fa- right? Fantastical. Yeah. Because there's some slow motion and John, he's floating above the, the piano with his hand, his fingers are still on the keys, but he's floating and the mm-hmm. audience is floating. And so that's just saying, this is the feeling people probably had when they first saw Elton John at the Troubadour. Yeah, and likewise, the feeling that he had probably when he knew that he broke through not only just that stage fright, but when he also, you know, kind of realized to himself, like, holy shit, this is big time now. Like, yeah. I'm really, like, I'm getting the audiences. That's what I mean about how this movie really breathes new life into the biopic genre for me. And I mean, it's something that's kind of a, j- traditionally kind of a stale genre. It, yeah. It's things like that that rejuvenate my interest in, in that particular kind of movie because you don't, it's hard to make metaphors like that in a, in a straight up biography. Yeah. And um, Elton John's uh, husband, David Furnish, is a producer on this movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm sure, and I'm sure Elton said, biopic, been there, done that. <laughs> yes. What, what can we do? Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What can we do to really change this up? Uh, I don't know if you've seen online. There's there's um, some clips of Elton playing piano with um, with Edgerton uh, singing. Um, um, no, I did not actually. And Elton, you can just see it on Elton's face. He is loving it. Elton even said uh, his songs have never been sung better than this. Now wow. they have been. They've <laughs> been sung better by Elton. John. By him, right? <laughs> and Taryn doesn't try to imitate Elton John so much. Right, and I think I mean, that works too. I think it works also. Because really the whole point of the movie is not really just to tell his story, but it's also really to just explore and and examine his persona more than anything and, and who yeah. he is inside and, and how his choices and his life shaped who he is today. Yeah. And he had a horrible father, but I mean, they all oh, do yeah. in these movies. Yeah. <laughs> this, guy seemed like a, this guy seemed like a real dick. Yeah, he did. He was very emotionally detached. And I bet Elton is the best father. I'm sure he is to make up for that. This this is going to be a tangent. I'm so sick and tired of the bad fathers blaming their bad fathers for the reason that they're a bad father. Yeah, I'm so sick of that, guys. You're you're supposed to break the chain. Yep. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And if you're not gonna, if in your head you're not gonna break the chain, then please don't have children. Right. <laughs> I mean, what what? Don't don't go into fatherhood. 
using your bad father as your example of how it's going to be okay for you to be a bad father. Right. It's an excuse. It's an excuse. Jesus. Mm-hmm. I hate that. It's just... Um, I, just ridiculous. Yeah. But, um, mm-hmm. um, but I think that was my biggest maybe quibble with the movie in general is, is for every intoxicating musical number, of which there are several, and they're all all the musical scenes, well, with maybe one or two exceptions, are wonderful. They, it did kind of fall back on the more traditional storytelling tropes during a lot of the narrative sure. scenes. Sure. Um, which, I mean, it is what it is. It's fine. It didn't ruin the movie or anything. But the fact that it was contrasted with such brilliant musical numbers was a little frustrating at times. What, I'm, what I was going to say earlier about uh, going to see it as a family movie is mm-hmm. we, we, we weren't going to be able to make it happen with the girls like the first weekend. And so I just, I said to Pilar, I go, hey, I, I, I need to see it the first day. <laughs> yeah. I'm, like a baby. I'm like a baby. I go, I got it. Let you and I just go see it. I was the same way. I was like, I don't care if I'm going by myself. I am yeah. going to see it opening day. Because I want to see it again. I really, I have to see it again on the big screen. It's yeah. so great. I, I plan on it probably next weekend. And uh, definitely purchasing it without a doubt. I gave Bohemian Rhapsody like a 7 out of 10. Because the things I liked about it, I did like about it. But I give this a 10 out of 10. I really do. Wow. I would For give... All... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I'd probably give it like an 8.5 to 9. And But what would you give uh, Bohemian Rhapsody? Probably a 5. <laughs> okay, so so it so it equals out. Yeah, you give it, it does. You give it a 7. You give this, a, you know, a, you know, an 8.5 or a 9. But I just, um, it exceeded expectations. So that all, also says something for me. Yeah, for me too. I think we, we talked about that too. Is my expectations were pretty low going into this movie. I heard that it was a musical, but I figured what they meant by that was... Another frustrating thing about Bohemian Rhapsody is with the music, I would just be getting into the song like, oh, yeah, this is a jam. And then they would would stop. They'd go to another scene. Yeah, the song's never out. Yeah, they've never completed a full song. So I just assumed that that meant that there would be complete songs in the movie. I never thought that it would be a full out choreographed dance routine. (laughs) Right. Also, I don't know. As far as the movie Rocket Man goes, this is going to be a chicken and an egg type thing. I don't know if this was originally planned to be a Broadway show first with then maybe making it a movie afterwards, or mm-hmm. if they said, why don't we make a movie first? And then that will be us showing the world that this can be a Broadway musical. You know what I mean? Right. Cause there's no way that this isn't going to be turned into a Broadway musical. Oh, absolutely not. There is no way that it's not going to be. I, I mean, yeah. it's like I, a reverse mama Mia. Exactly. And, um, much in the way that I can't believe that Beautiful, the Carol King musical, hasn't been turned into a movie yet. I know. Have you? Did you see Beautiful? No, I didn't. I've heard the soundtrack album, yeah. but I haven't actually seen it. I really want to, though. It falls apart in the second act for me after intermission. Oh, okay. They, they rush everything. They make it seem like she comes to L.A., moves from New York to L.A., records Tapestry, big-time fame. There's yeah. there's stuff. There's she she's she does a band album and then she does another so, first solo album and then ta- but they I understand that's nitpicky but it just it's, it's annoying yeah <laughs> it's annoying that they don't it's just like I came to LA and boom right which is kind of true but not but no but, yeah, uh, there needs to be a little bit more nuance to it yeah. <laughs> yes and uh yeah th- yeah this is this is going to be a musical without question oh, 100% I, how did you I, feel about it, the um performances like the rearranged versions of the elton john songs because i know that's always a bone of contention for me 
because um, I was worried about that with at least with Bohemian Rhapsody. I know it's a crapshoot because they lip sync, but yeah. then and, but like in Mamma Mia, they retooled all the songs, and I hated it. And so yeah. in this, I was worried about that, but it worked for me here. It worked for me too. Like I didn't I didn't mind it at all. And again, um, this is a fantasy. They let you yeah. know it's a fantasy. You know what yes. I mean? Mm-hmm. If you don't know it's a fantasy, then I don't know what to tell you. It's not going to work for you at all. So anything they did, anything they did was going to work for me. I mean, there's a scene when he's on stage and uh, he blasts off this, his feet turn into like rocket jets and he blasts into the sky. I mean, yep. that it's was all, the song Rocket Man. And that was a big yeah. like fever, cocaine induced fever dream, that whole entire yeah. musical sequence. Yeah. That might have been my favorite musical number in the whole movie. I actually shed a couple tears during that song. Is that when the, the camera's going around in a circle? That was Pinball Wizard. That was right before. Yeah. I think after Pinball Wizard is when he had his that big bender. He went yeah, yeah, yeah. did all that cocaine and then yeah. it went into Oh, and then it went to the beach party or the pool yeah. party. And then he dove into the water because he was so drugged out because he just couldn't take everything anymore. And then he saw his apparition of him as a kid at the bottom of the pool and And they sing, they sing underwater. It's so great. It is so great. Um, if you suffer from motion sickness, the scene when the <laughs> yeah. piano goes around, my wife and I both had to look away for a second because yeah. it was like really like intense. Yeah, it was. <laughs> uh, one of the favorites, one of my favorite images of the movie, and it's in the trailer, is when he's in the Dodgers outfit. I and love his that. Face is very sad, and they hand him the baseball bat, and just in a split second, he turns on the the performer face. That little five second moment to me is basically is the movie. Sums up his whole life until he gets clean and sober and happy. I'm I'm so moved by that. Just that exactly what you explained, that little five second moment. And then um, the movie basically ends with him. He's been in rehab. Uh, you know, spoiler alert, please. Uh, mm-hmm. Bernie comes to visit him and Bernie. And I knew what song I knew <laughs> what song they were going to end the movie on. I knew it. Right. It's really did, obvious. It's really obvious. Bernie hands him. He he just as he's leaving, he goes, "Oh, and here you might want to." He just hands him an envelope of lyrics like he had always done. And Elton goes to the rehab center and finds um, the music room and goes to this small piano that's there. And then we get "I'm Still Standing." It's perfect. Yep. Um, and I... fun because in that for this scene, they actually insert him into the real video. That was so cool. They don't re. They don't try to recreate that video. They just insert him into it. The way that he was telling his story from rehab was a really smart move because it kind of anchored the story a little bit. Right. And there, and he enters rehab in this very flamboyant stage <laughs> costume of the devil, we'll say. And that immediately sets the tone for the audience because yeah. there's no way he went to rehab in that costume. But as soon as you see him walk into rehab... You know, it's like a it's like a, a circle, a, a group of people talking, and he sits down like that. I immediately knew what this movie was going to be. Each subsequent scene in the rehab, he would piece by piece start to break the costume and start to take yeah. it off to yep. kind of like, oh, you know, this is this is my whole life, this whole performative life of mine has been a facade, and now I'm I'm trying to get out of that so that I can yeah. really be my true self. Yep, exactly. Uh, even him like just tearing the horns off and throwing yep. them down. And you know, what's funny is um, one of my problems with Bohemian Rhapsody, because we just talked about how they recreated that video, not mm-hmm. recreated it, but in certain, yeah. um, in Bohemian Rhapsody, I'd love that they recreated a live aid and were willing to show the whole thing minus one song. I think at the same time, 
I would have loved it if as the actors went through the curtain to the Live Aid stage, if on the other side, they would have actually just played the real performance. Yeah. And even if they're not going to do that, I wish when they went to families' homes and to the bar scenes, that when they looked on the TVs, that they saw the actual performance. They didn't even give us that, which was... That it's was just a kind of lame. Yeah. But that's another movie. Right. <laughs> um, what else What else do you want to talk about? I mean... What are some uh, of your, your favorite um, musical numbers? Oh, man. <laughs> it's not really a musical number, but I like that they slipped Don't Go Breaking My Heart in there. Yeah, the that record, was good. The recording of it, just so Kiki D and actress could play Kiki D for a second. Yeah, and um, that actually was a recreation of the music video for that song. It was. It was. Yep. And, but, but in the guise of this is how we looked when we were actually recording it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's not an Elton John song, I really did like the pinball wizard part. Me too. Yeah, I know some people were uncertain about its inclusion in the movie, but I think Elton it was... John- yeah. Elton John's cover of that song, he really made that his own. He did, yeah. And I thought that was a good way for them to kind of reference the fact that he did Tommy. Yeah, um, without without having to see him as as the pinball wizard. And, and those giant and, shoes. And, re- and recreating uh, a whole scene of him filming that yeah. movie. We didn't need to. They did a lot of that ni- stuff nicely where they, where they would – you knew – if you were a big Elton John fan, you knew that they were paying homage to this without – Without it being too on the nose, yeah. Without being too in this. What was the one where they were running through the streets and he crashed through the window? Oh, Saturday night. Yes. Saturday night's love, all right for fighting. I really love that one. That was pretty amazing. Me too. I love how it's, it's just an explosion of energy at the start of the movie. And that's, yeah. like I said, that's a song I was never particularly crazy about, but I loved it in this movie. It was just yeah. so high energy. And when and as soon as Taryn, you know, leaps onto the screen like it's game over for me. It's just I can't stop looking at him the whole time. Yeah, he's a he, he's a force of nature. Yeah, just I, well, yeah, both of us can't we can't say enough about about how great uh, this guy is. Yeah, in this role. Um, I think my well, Rocket Man was my favorite sequence, my favorite musical sequence in the movie. Okay, um, I, and I found it the most emotionally affecting for me, it, especially when he's you know in the hospital and they're actually like doing a dance with his ailing body you know in the stretcher yeah yeah. (laughs) it was dark and it was a lot of that movie has or a lot of the movie has like those self-referential touches like even at the end when rehab you know right before bernie comes and he's talking to kind of you know visions of all the people in his life who have who either he has hurt or has hurt him and kind of trying to sort through his feelings with that could be seen as self-indulgent which i suppose it is but it's also it, it also kind of gets you into his head very beautifully i thought another one of my favorite numbers too was crocodile rock we talked about yeah oh honky cat was the one i was trying to think of honky cat and benny of the jets were two really fun campy numbers and it was cool to see how unapologetically gay this movie was um and those yeah. those two scenes were you know kind of the apex of that really flashy uh, really flamboyant especially re- between him and his boyfriend at the time it was yeah. it was fun it was really neat to see yeah, and they let you know that bernie toppin's not gay yeah um, without hitting you over the head with straightness either you know what i mean yes yeah because i could see like some you know some people might be like well i want to i want you to make sure that I, i'm not the people know I wasn't gay. You know what I mean? Right, like I mean, like gay panic almost, you know? Yes, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. How do you feel about this? Like, again, I said my oldest daughter's gay, and mm-hmm. she, uh, they have a big problem with when gay actors aren't used to portray. Oh, like gay roles? Yes. And I, and I, under, I, always, I always say I understand what you mean, 
And um, there should be more of that. I agree with that. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I had a problem that they didn't cast an English actress as his mom. Yeah, that was a little bizarre. It's Bryce Dallas Howard. She's Mm -hmm. fine. But I really feel like it should have been an English actress, right? I don't know. Yeah, I I see what you're saying. (laughs) I feel like finding an English actress would not have been that big of a challenge. (laughs) No, not at all. So that there's like there's a million of them out there now. Yeah. Finding a gay actor who has a little bit of marquee value is more difficult because maybe some gay actors are still not out. But I don't know how you feel about well that. I mean, I mean, it doesn't really it doesn't really bother me that much. I feel they probably could have straight or gay would have sold the movie just on Elton John. Um, yes. When you get into transgenderism, that's a whole other animal. But as far yes. as, you know, gay versus straight, I don't know. I don't really have too much I mean, of a problem I, with this. As long as it's not done in a way that's condescending. No. When when Ezra sees this, and mm. she'll, they'll probably bring this up, I'll probably just tell them that um, if Elton John was fine with it, <laughs> <laughs> then I, yeah, then, El- Elton John wanted Justin Timberlake of all people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So and so, I'm fine with it too. But um, yeah. I, I understand that as well. I really do because there needs to be more opportunities in general. You know. Yeah, I mean, when there's a when there's an African American movie and and it's not an African American directing it, sometimes I'm like, huh, that's weird. You know what I yeah, mean? Absolutely. Oh, 100%. Like Steven Spielberg directing The Color Purple. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, like when Black Panther came out and then they're talking about the sequel and I'm like, well, there's no way that they're going to try to get another director. Right. To, you know what I mean? That uh-huh. isn't, that, oh, I forget the guy's name. I, I know it, but I forget it. But, or, or even with Wonder Woman, I'm like, yeah, you're going to let Patty Jenkins direct every Wonder Woman movie right. out Right. You can't do direct Wonder Woman now after <laughs> it was a success with a female director. There's no way you can take that away from her. No, that was a huge breakthrough. And it shouldn't be, but yes, it was. I, you're, you're absolutely right. These biopics are going to start to come fast and furious now. Who would be like two artists you would like to see a biopic of? I would love to see a Fleetwood Mac biopic. All right. That's pretty, that's pretty solid. <laughs> well, I think that that would be enough for like a FX miniseries, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yep. Um, I would say them and, ooh. you know, I got to go with the Bee Gees. I think that'd make a great biopic because you got the family drama. You do with, uh, with, with Andy and with all the stuff. Yeah. I would want to see. You just couldn't call it staying alive. <laughs> i would love i would love to see the ramones oh that'd be a good one didn't they have a a musical right a stage musical yeah john ross bowie uh wrote uh, a play called uh i forget the name it's not it's not four chords and a gun three chords and a gun Mm -hmm. but it's it's basically just about it's not a musical but it's basically just them recording uh with phil Spector, and it's great it's a great play it really is stellar and that would be a fine movie, but I, I, but it doesn't cover their whole career. Yeah, that so would I, be a pretty a colorful story. I also think a a, a, a monkeys movie would be interesting. Mm-hmm. A decent one, because there was a really piece of crap one made in the nineties. <laughs> so I'd like yeah. to see a decent one made. Um, and of course, you know, I love Carol King, so I wouldn't mind if Beautiful was brought to the screen. I'd like to see that too. 
and then uh, I mean, um, you know, the Who might be mm-hmm. cool. The Who I think would be kind of like with Elton John, where you maybe would stop in the early '80s after Keith. Yeah, moved. yeah. After they come back a bunch of times. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but I, I really do think these are going to start coming. So, and, and I hope they're good. And this one was willing to, uh, you know, if I, for lack of a better term, step out of the box and uh, yeah. and give us something kind of cool. How about a share biopic? Yes, that would be amazing, actually. Yeah, because I mean, uh, Sonny and Share to Share to a comeback to movies to Academy Award, mm-hmm. tons of stuff there. Okay, well, uh, Pat, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It was it's always awesome having you. I'm glad you enjoyed the movie as much as I did, and I hope oh, that this definitely. can get people to come more people to go see it. And so where, where can um, people follow you on the social media and on your podcast? Um, for music related stuff, follow me at, at rock solid show on Twitter for uh, personal stuff where, uh, you know, I might uh, joke around or talk politics. It's uh, at Pat underscore Francis. If you go to rocksolidpodcast.com, you can find everything you need to know about the show, where to find episodes, t-shirts, all that fun stuff. So, um, so yeah, that's it. And, um, going into our ninth year in a couple of episodes coming up. Wow. Nine years. Unbelievable. And, um, still having fun. And that's what I tell anyone who wants to do a podcast and I can hear it in your voice that you're having fun doing this. So just have fun. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I love it. It's a great, it's a great hobby. It really, yeah, I agree. It is 100%. And if you go into it, uh, in a way that you feel of it as an, uh, is it's going to be a hobby or it's going to be a creative outlet for yourself and you're going to have fun with it. Find a topic that you're passionate about, whether it's sports, music, cars, whatever, and, and just do it. So, yeah, because you it, will have listeners no, one way or the other. It, it'll happen. You'll find your niche. People will find your show, especially if, uh, especially if other podcasts start talking about your podcast and everyone mm-hmm. s- starts to promote everyone's shows. That's how, that's how my show got more successful. I think, uh, that's how you probably got a lot of listeners. And so it's a nice community of music fans on the rock solid Twitter and on your Twitter. So it's, it's cool. Yeah, it's awesome. So you can follow the show at, um, at rock movies pod on Twitter. And I have a, a, a new and improved Twitter, uh, personal Twitter handle at Josh F six eighteen. Um, so you can follow me there if you'd like and, um, leave a show talking about, um, getting more people to listen please leave a review on, um, I guess it's Apple Podcasts now. It's not iTunes anymore. And um, that helps people to find the show as well. And top, positive or negative, they're both appreciated. <laughs> and yeah. um, thanks for, li- oh, and my email as well. You can email me at moviesthatrockpod at gmail.com if you'd like to talk more about Elton John and why Leather Jackets is a terrible album. <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 or a great album. It's a great album. All right. <laughs> Either way, hit us up. So, Um, Thanks again, Pat, so much, and I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. You too, Josh. Thanks for having me on the show. We'll see you uh, soon. Okay, sounds great. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye.